Business Executives for National Security welcomes you to Building the Base. Here, thought leaders and practitioners discuss how we can ensure our shared security and prosperity through shaping the future of the national security industrial base. Your hosts are Silicon Valley defense expert Lauren Bedula, along with Ben's distinguished fellow and former head of acquisition for the Navy, Marines, and Special Operators, Hondo Gertz. on the private sector side, and I always love this story because he actually decided to go into government, um, spent some time at the White House looking at the threat landscape specifically around China, and then was director of DIU for several years and led really important efforts there. Back on the private sector side now, doing some investment work and advisory work as well. Mike, thanks so much for joining us. Well, Lauren, uh, pleasure to be here with you both, with you and Hondo. Thank you for having me. So, I'm, I'm, Mike, uh, you and I were thick as thieves, uh, you know, <laughs> b- battling against the bureaucracy in the department from from uh, our various positions. But I didn't know a lot about you know, your history of getting to the department. You just showed up as like this icon of innovation uh, plopping into the department. What, uh, I want you to tell our listeners a little bit of kind of your background and, and kind of what led up to this, uh, you know, really taking Defense Innovation Unit to the next level. Yeah, well, Hondo, uh, like many things in life, uh, luck or serendipity plays a role. So, as Lawrence said, I spent most of my career uh, in Silicon Valley as a tech uh, executive and CEO, led uh, two companies, a hardware company, Quantum Corporation, and a software company, Symantec. And at the end of that time at Symantec, I met my predecessor, now a partner, Raj Shah, uh, F-16 pilot, and uh, he had been asked by Ash Carter to lead the Defense Innovation Unit. And... At the time, uh, he said, I've got an assignment from Ash and I don't know what to do with it. And it's basically, let's understand what the Chinese are doing with their investment in early stage companies. They're very active in Silicon Valley. Why? How big is that? So that led to an eye-opening study for all of us that the Chinese were very involved. And while we knew that uh, they were very involved in industrial espionage and cyber theft, we weren't following as closely what they were doing legally. Uh, to basically exploit our open society, make investments in some of the leading edge technology that was being developed in Silicon Valley and elsewhere. So that led to some legislation on how to give the Committee on Foreign Investment in the U.S. a little more authority. It was a law called FIRMA, Foreign Investment uh, Risk Review Modernization Act. That was a mouthful right there. And uh, that ignited a passion in me that, my goodness, while I've been a CEO just figuring out how to grow market share in companies, there's a much bigger problem that we've got because China's very serious, very systematic approach, huge amount of investment to really displace the U.S. as a technology superpower in the world. And I thought, I don't want to sit by and not be doing anything when I see that happening around me. So that led me to uh, the Defense Innovation Unit and uh, some work with you, Honda, which I very much enjoyed. And what's your take, Mike, since the report? You're still very plugged in in Silicon Valley. Do you think the private sector has a good understanding of that threat environment, or do we have a long way to go vis-a-vis China? I think both are true. And I'd say, uh, you know, when we started this work in 2016 at the end of the Obama administration, China was viewed as a very large company, and huge, a very large country, and a huge market opportunity. So CEOs were figuring out, how do I get there? And not as many had heard some of the sad tales of companies have been forced to create joint ventures and their technology found its way into China and competitors being set up. That's more well known now and you'd have to credit uh, some of my friends, uh, Matt Pottinger, Matt Turpin, 
uh, and what the NSC did to wake up the country uh, during the Trump administration to know there's a growing threat. Now you see that uh, reflected in some of the Pew research polls and so forth. China's standing in the world in terms of uh, how people are viewing it and whether it's a force for good. Clearly, uh, we've seen the decline with the uh, increasing awareness of what's going on with the Uyghurs, the surveillance state among the, the Chinese people, the wolf warrior diplomacy, the handling of the COVID pandemic, where they hid that from the world. So that's become much more well-known. People are much more aware of the threat. But in some of the small innovative companies that uh, uh, I'm working with that uh, are trying to find a pathway into the Defense Department, I'd say they still don't have the awareness to set up the right cybersecurity insider threat uh, programs. I'm glad to see the FBI, uh, certainly in San Francisco, is doing a much better job of trying to educate those companies. But I call that the, the soft underbelly. So while uh, an Intel or uh, Google would clearly understand the threat, uh, you might find some younger companies that really don't have the money to put in those programs less aware of how much of a target they really are. So, Mike, you talk a little bit about the changing landscape, and you've got this interesting, you saw it, you came into the department for five years, now you're back out again. And at least my sense in talking to a number of the guests we've had on and interactions is the, the mood of the Valley at large mm -hmm. has, has somewhat shifted from you know, national security and national prosperity are like two different things and somebody else go take care of national security, we're gonna focus on. And now a much more, I think, interleaved view by many that you can't really separate security and prosperity and that, you know, while some companies don't wanna be defense first or defense, uh, they at least appreciate the need for it. Is, is my sense of the Valley accurate and now that you're back out in, in, in those networks, Absolutely. Yeah. I think uh, we benefit from the fact that folks are seeing uh, more commercial technology used in warfighting. And frankly, Ukraine has just been really a game changer in terms of the different types of technology, whether it's the communications technology. One company, SpaceX, who's Starlink, supplying the backbone of communications for a country at war. Uh, what we've seen, uh, you know, with the increasing uh, satellite uh, imagery that basically allowed the intelligence community to forecast this is exactly what Putin is going to do. So we're seeing that the drones uh, being used very successfully to uh, really make loitering munitions, uh, something that we're going to see in warfare on an ongoing basis. So we're seeing a lot more commercial technology applied uh, to warfare. And I think it woke up those who might not have been aware in uh, Silicon Valley and elsewhere around the country that there are still evil forces in the world. And unfortunately, uh, one person's uh, you know, megalomania can create absolute havoc for millions of people. It's horrible to watch, but I think that has inspired more people that I gotta be part of this fight when that happens. Mm -hmm. It's a great point, and you were in during a very interesting time. You had Google pulling out of Project Maven mm -hmm. and uh, almost this division between Silicon Valley and the national security community in the post-Noden world. Um, that's changed a lot today, where I think there are thousands of companies eager to support, people eager to sign up for mission, which, which is uh, very promising. When we talk about some of the 
hurdles to strengths and collaboration, we like to dig in, is this a policy challenge or a cultural challenge? I'm curious to see from the progress we've made since and where we sit today, what's your take on that question? Well, Lauren, you hit the nail on the head. It's really both. Uh, and we need probably some change in policy and incentives to drive the cultural change that we're all looking for. We need to be moving faster at, at speed because the threats are coming faster and the technology is moving so fast. One, one quick example, uh, uh, fielding small drones in uh, the Department of Defense, uh, DIU got a chance to work on an Army program of record. It was called Short Range Reconnaissance. How do we get the same kind of commercial drone you buy at a hobby shop in the hands of uh, uh, infantry soldiers? Because these are great tools to see over the hill. Um, they can do other things too. Uh, but unfortunately, we found it took a decade to get fielded something that these soldiers could buy at a hobby shop. During that time frame, and we were working through our requirements and acquisition system built to buy tanks and aircraft carriers, DJI introduced six successive generations, and our process at DOD put requirements on such that the vendor that was selected uh, was uh, had to charge 17 times what that soldier could buy something at the hobby shop. So, I think the department uh, really has to rethink how it buys commercial items. The good news is there's many more commercial items that can be useful in warfare. We just talked about a couple in Ukraine, but we have to rethink. There can't be the same process to buy a piece of AI software that we used to buy a tank or aircraft carrier. Yeah, Mike, you're always a champion, which I, two things I really admired uh, when we worked together. One was really promoting this idea of being a fast follower. And you don't have to invent everything to make it useful. If you can import it and integrate it faster than anybody, uh, uh, same thing. And then you are also very good at breaking down traditional, I'd say, transactional silos. And you would come to me in the, uh, as a Navy and say, here's what I'm hearing, here's the things I can do to help you do what you're trying to do better. Do you sense um, we're making that more of a state of practice in the DOD, we, have we made progress there or still, we still have a lot of, we like to re, reinvent things because we're used to being the inventor, not the buyer. Yeah, well, I think both are true. We've made a lot of progress and uh, I know you would agree, we, yeah. we still have so much more to do. Yeah. So for those who haven't heard, fast follower strategy is basically out of uh, concept that is the commercial world. If I'm a tech company, I either am inventing, I'm a first mover, if not, I better follow fast. I don't want to be uh, in the slow lane uh, if I'm not the inventor and, uh, and get run over. So uh, the department uh, 60 years ago was really first mover on so many technologies that we take for granted today, like the semiconductor industry or GPS or the internet that came out of DARPA. So first mover. But for 80% of the technologies that the department's CTO has identified as important to modernize the department, 80% of those are being developed now in the commercial world. So we need to be fast following if we're not gonna be inventing. We're still inventing on some. Uh, first mover still applies, but our system is always geared to first mover. So for now, the majority of technology, we really need a way to go faster. And what that means is we gotta decide, number one, who's buying those technologies because they're not developed for a service. If I am a shipbuilder, I knew to come to you, Hondo, because mm -hmm. only one part of the department was gonna buy ships. But if I'm developing uh, imagery on uh, CubeSats or digital wearables or small drones, those could be used by any service. So the department has to say who's gonna buy those, otherwise we're confused, we create multiple sets of requirements and we splinter the demand. 
exactly the wrong incentives that we'd want. So first step is who's gonna buy the technology? And then let's just run a competitive process to figure out who's the best. We have the authority to do that, other transaction authority, mm -hmm. and the DIU invented a way to use that called a commercial solutions opening. It's just a competitive process like any uh, company would use. Um, and in fact, I think we need for many of these commercial items, rather than a program of record, which is I'm gonna set aside money for a single requirement and buy from a single vendor for 40 years, I know I'm gonna need small drones or digital wearables or commercial satellite imagery. We need Congress to give us the flexibility to put that in a pot of money and allow the department then to say, okay, I'm gonna evaluate commercial drones on the cycle at which they come out and immediately field those to warfighters. So that's really a commercial mindset, uh, but it would be an alternative way from our traditional set of requirements, use the federal acquisition regulation process and fund a program of record. We need Congress's help on the budgeting part, but the department can do the rest itself. It would be a parallel way to bring in commercial items and especially those that are iterating at a very fast rate in the, in the digital world. Yeah, and, and I can't say enough of, we sometimes get a little bit preoccupied with prototyping things mm -hmm. and um, you know doing one-off on things. Prototyping new ways to buy things, prototyping new procedures so we can differentiate the products. Um, I think we've made some progress on, but certainly uh, lots to go. What you did at DIU to help prototype commercial service offer. Okay, now when I'm a service guy, I don't have to invent it. I can just, uh, I'm not that smart, I'm a hell of a poacher. I'll just steal what you've done and, and dig it. So I think, but it gets back to this opportunistic mindset where we're uncomfortable with what we can produce uh, at the speed and then really look at new things. Um, and I think people uh, think of the, the prototyping process as I'm going to do some long experimentation cycle. Yeah. Really, I thought about that as the testing and making sure it worked in a military environment. Yeah. So it wasn't how do we develop the product. Prototyping right. sometimes has you think, oh, that some product development is happening there. Yeah. No, it's allowing the yeah. military customer to basically put that in a yeah. environment we think is as close to what it's going to face yeah. in warfighting, test it, and see who's the best. Or prototype a use case. Will yes. I work in this use yeah. case? That's, yeah. that, the other thing I learned from you, Hondo, uh, uh, is that the department is way over-invested in this discovery, experimentation, you know, let, let's uh, see what's out there from a technology standpoint, or develop it ourselves. And we're way under-invested in the deployment. I'd love to see the department budget split into what capabilities are coming in the next five years and which ones are coming from five to 20 years. And I think we'd see a very lopsided allocation where it's all focused on the long-term. I'm not arguing to change the long-term, but the balance has to be there. And if we talk to anyone on the front lines, a combatant commander, Admiral Aquilino in Indo-PACOM, he cares about what's coming in the next two or three years. Uh, the threat seems to be accelerating. We certainly don't want to have to fight uh, in the Taiwan Strait, South China Seas. But if we were to have to, we have to go to war with what we have now or is immediately on the horizon. Talking about a new fighter aircraft or submarine class coming that's so far into the future. So more, more emphasis on what we can field and deploy. Mm -hmm. So Mike, you're a business person, and so I wanna hit on organizational structures and processes. While you were at DOD leading DIU, it seems like several innovation hubs were started or popped up. Um, what's your take on that approach? How is it like collaborating with them? Any thoughts on where we should be going there? 
Well, we've taken uh, a good idea and now uh, proliferated it to the point where it's confusing. And I remember talking with Ash Carter about this uh, a year or so ago, and he liked the fact that there seemed to be a thousand flowers blooming. Of course, he didn't have to work in the system where <laughs> you're, uh, you're waiting for the bees to come. But the problem with that is uh, many of these organizations, including DIU until recently, were starved for resources. So now we have more resources competing, more organizations competing for fewer resources. And now we confuse the commercial world with, well, who should I go to? It's fine to have multiple pathways, but when uh, I see an uh, innovation landscape produced recently by the department that had uh, over 100 organizations, I don't think we're really concentrating to tell the commercial world what we need and who we are. So I think it's, we've kind of taken that to the limit. I'd love to see uh, department leadership now make some decisions. What's worked? What hasn't worked? I remember telling my boss, if, if DIU is not delivering and bringing new capability to Warfighter, shut it down and give the resources to somebody who is. So we've, we've not done the hard management decision that you'd see happen with a portfolio in the commercial world of saying, I prune this every once in a while, um, and I give more resources to the successful organization. I, I think you're starting to, you know, one of the success, I think, in SOCOM was really closing down that distance, like you would in a commercial world, from end user to buyer and you know technical provider and and I am um, I, I think um, some of the recent activities you know Task Force Fifty Nine yes. and really getting the operational voice closer to that as you said oversubscribed in discovery and underperforming in deployment and getting it getting more stuff all the way down into the actual employment and do the art there's innovation in operational art that needs to occur at the at the same time. Do you think there's um, opportunities in, you know, I, I think of capabilities, equipment, training, and tactics. Um, do you sense there's opportunities to bring what I think a lot of commercial tech has brought to how fast a consumer can employ a capability or you know, learn how to use an app? Uh, do you think there's room in the DOD to bring that same thinking to to speed up that, I would say, adoption rate? There's no question. Uh, I think, you know, your question really spells it out. The, the best tech development we see is, I may have an idea at the company, probably informed by talking with customers, but I iterate on that. I make sure I get the designers, the programmers, into the field to talk to customers, and the more rapidly that cycle occurs, the more we can improve upon the idea and get something that has the right product market fit. That's a big concept uh, in the commercial world, and it's called agile development. And it's changed from when I grew up uh, in the industry, how we think about developing products. So we're less uh, wedded to a very long development cycle, where it's lots of planning and things coming together, to how fast can I iterate, get some feedback, and iterate again. So it's, it's proven in the commercial world. And we, now we need to apply that more frequently. Task Force 59 is just such a great example of fantastic uh, work happening in the department where the Navy's saying, hey, I see all these autonomous platforms. How can I get some feedback very quickly? So let's create this task force and get on a daily basis feedback from all these different vendors and concepts. Let's see what actually works. My frustration uh, with Task Force 59 is rather than saying, great, let's deploy that immediately. Now we're gonna send it to another fleet, the fourth fleet. I'm sure they're gonna do some great things with it. But meanwhile, Admiral Acolino just asked us for more capability right now. So we could be moving faster to deploy 
yeah, uh, I think that, that are there there is the same risk of over you know over investing in the operational innovation side and having too many task force and getting it diluted because right. uh, you have the same you have the same uh, risk there. And, and one of the challenges, I mean, this is a perfect example because there's so many different types of autonomous platforms they were testing. So in air, um, surface of the sea and, and the undersea, and these vendors are struggling. So they need strong demand signals from the Navy to say, we're interested in what you're doing and we need to make sure some of you are successful uh, or else we'll see for the maritime world the same thing that's occurred in the drone industry um, at large, which is China now as the largest producer. I don't want to see us miss that opportunity again. And it's happening in space and it's happening in other sectors as well. We've got to make sure that the department where it still can be a first mover is exercising its ability to shape the vendor base so we can stay the first mover. Mm -hmm. I, I'm going to ask you one question, but two different ways, because we have a lot of tech companies and founders who listen and are interested in breaking into DOD uh, as a potential customer. What would resonate with you as director of DIU when you talk to a company, and then now you're investing in them? What do you tell them? What are best practices? How do you? What advice do you give them to navigate go, doing business with with DoD? So the, the first question, then, when you say what would resonate for the companies, or for you as director of DIU, what would stand out if if a company came to see you? <laughs> well, uh, I think one of the things that I learned very early on in my career at uh, DIU was shopping cool tech to the Pentagon is a complete waste of time. Uh, as Honda well knows, if you don't have a need, sometimes the department calls that requirement, if you don't have that established and money behind it, you are just uh, doing an experiment that isn't gonna go anywhere. Mm -hmm. So for me, what would resonate is, I'm talking to a company and I know there's already a requirement, there's a need. So a lot of our emphasis at DIU was spending time with the folks who were in touch with what the needs are. That's why I always wanted to try and get on Hondo's calendar if I could, and other leaders in the department so we get better informed. Because if we're solving their problem, now we've got interest both on the department side plus the, the vendor side. And that's, that's what we need to make something work. So what I would tell companies was the same thing. We need to find a, uh, a program, a, uh, something that's defined, a requirement that, that we can help fill. So if you think about the way DIU worked, we didn't, go out and do surveys of what's out there. We started with a problem and then delivered uh, to the market what we call a commercial solutions opening, an area of interest where the problem was stated and made public and then companies would respond to that. And over time now, uh, we're probably up to 45, 50 companies responding to every question or problem we put out there. But those companies knew when a question went out, there was already a validated demand or need. We weren't just, uh, you know, shopping in the air with a RFI to see what's out there. They knew some, something was behind that. And then we got to a conversion rate that was over 50% of when we started a project, somebody, a uh, vendor, wound up with a production contract. Well, that, that's, that speaks volumes. And then companies want to participate in something. If it's, could you please spend your valuable resources responding to an RFI, and then a year or two we'll tell you if that's interesting to us, that's not very interesting to companies. Mm -hmm. Big opportunity cost for companies. Yeah, it's a really important point. Don't have meetings for the sake of meetings. T take the time to do your homework, know the customer, and know what operational value you might be adding. Um, so In that, fact, Ash Carter found that the first iteration of DIU, I've talked to him about this, he, he put the DIU out as a tech scout. Let's have coffee with 
companies and venture capitalists, and what the first iteration of DIU found was, if you're not talking about a contract, they're not interested in the coffee. Right, right, <laughs> so, right, right. Many talks, we gotta leverage the capitalistic system we're in yeah. to drive the interest in these companies to wanna support DLD. And I see that from the private sector side, I think with all these innovation hubs, you could just spend so much time right. talking to people and it's a waste, waste of resources. Right. And we're in a pretty difficult economic time right now, especially in the tech sector, the defense and industrial base is dealing with inflation as well. So what's your take Mike, now, you know, back in the private sector, investing in these companies, is there still increasing interest from the financial community to look at companies to go to market with DOD, or what's the latest? Yes, the, the good news is uh, the venture community has shown they're very interested, so the, the numbers tell the story. These from PitchBook, for 2021 and 2022, there were $7 billion each year invested in companies that were in the category of defense tech. The number is probably higher if we looked at companies that are dual-use tech. That's up from one billion four years ago, for the four years before 2021. So, accelerating at a rapid rate, but it's still a small percentage of all the money VCs are investing—300 billion a year. Mm -hmm. So, the seven billion to me is uh, just a beachhead and should be probably ten times that. What we have to do is figure out how, as the department uh, is uh, has the flexibility. I was just talking with uh, General Neller upstairs, former Marine uh, Commandant. He had no flexibility. He saw something exciting. He wanted to feel, you know, that had to be programmed into a budget that started three years ago. So there needs to be more flexibility in the budget so that the leaders in the department can buy what they want to feel, and that's going to drive, you know, the virtuous uh, circle here of more entrepreneurs excited about national security applications and more investors interested in funding those companies. So. We're at, in a cycle now where there's increasing interest from the venture community. That's exciting. I'm a part of that. But we have to see the returns from that, which would really be the department buying that. Implementing something like the fast follower strategy could make that go a lot faster and we get a lot more capability in warfighters' hands. So, Mike, uh, you know, it's, it's often the fruits of your labor uh, occur after you leave. Uh, and you were very vocal of your thoughts on how to reshape DAU and continue to build on that experiment, and, and I'll call it operationalize it, get it away from an experiment to operationally at scale. Uh, the SECDEF recently announced a bunch of changes, which I think were all things you were really a, a very vocal proponent for, uh, and thanks for that. Um, not to be your successor, you know, he'll have his own vision, but what would you say success for DAU and the department? looks like five years from now. Like if, if we really, you know, I think five years ago we were talking about should we do it? <laughs> now everybody's talking about how do we really, we should do it, now how do we do it better? Right. What's, what's, what's five years from now look like to you if we've really kind of, you know, is it, is it a, you know, an exponential jump, it's, you know, uh, I think that's what it's going to take. But what's your view of success? If all of our collective labor, startups, the department, your efforts is, is laid the groundwork, we're success. So I, I know, uh, first of all, thanks for the, the compliments. Uh, I couldn't be more enthused about Captain Doug Beck being the next uh, director of the Defense Innovation Unit. I can't think of anyone who has a background more suited 
already knows the military, which I had to learn, thanks to your help uh, in understanding some of that, uh, and also is a very successful tech executive coming from Apple, so he knows large companies, and I can assure you he's plugged into what's happening in the Valley. So that's great. I think even more important, the Secretary's recognition that this really needs to be scaled at a bigger level. And unfortunately, where you report in the world's largest bureaucracy does matter. And so his decision there, I couldn't uh, be applauding any more loudly. What DIU needs to do is make it less of a, a one-off and, as you said, more operationalized. So being more plugged into the uh, PEOs around the department, good example. I've seen uh, the, the idea on Capitol Hill that maybe every PEO needs an innovation officer. Why don't we have every PEO just call DIU and say, what can you deliver for me? If we can provide something from the commercial world, great, and if we can't, we have the process we've been using for 60 years to fall back on. But we need to have more connection with the PEOs, uh, with the, uh, uh, the process to develop the requirements that the Joint Staff does, it's called the JROC, getting plugged into some of those processes to make sure that we're always seeing what the commercial world has to offer. So the measure of success is really pretty simple. Number one, are we delivering capability to the warfighter faster? Uh, and we'll see that both in the kinds of new capabilities we're able to field in addition to the large platforms. Yeah, of course the department is still developing the next generation of sub and uh, uh, fighter aircraft as we should. But, you know, the Chinese have stolen those aircraft designs and they've seen us operate in the world for 20 or 30 years. They've studied us pretty carefully. We need to bring an element of surprise to this which we're seeing in Ukraine, what can we do to augment those capabilities? And if you want to feel them quickly, it's got to come from the commercial world. So that's going to be a measure of success. What new capabilities beyond the large platforms can we feel? And how much of the department's spending is going to new vendors in addition to the primes? We've had consolidation from 50 primes in 1950 to six. We sure better make sure those six companies are successful, but we need to build the base. That's what this podcast is all about. So we need to be relying on much more of the innovation ecosystem out there. Folks from academia, startups, large businesses, large commercial businesses like Google, we now have a federal sector to focus on uh, business. We need to be relying on all that talent, all that creativity, all of what they're developing as new capabilities so our warfighters have the absolute best. So, so we, you know, I often talk about we've lost the middle of the industrial base or network, right? We have, you know, the big, the bigs, and a lot of smalls, and 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 I think the question has been, can venture-backed commercial companies rapidly scale to fill that middle of the base, um, not to supplant necessarily one side or the other, but really fill in so we've got an ability to operate at scale but nimbly. Do, do you think that the promise there is real that that venture-backed startups? can be an important part of filling in the middle of the industrial network? I definitely do. Uh, that's why at Shield Capital we're focused on dual-use technology. So some of the uh, venture funds are focused on defense only. I, I applaud their efforts. But if you have to return uh, value to your limited partners or your shareholders at a venture fund, then you're going to need to take advantage of the commercial world. It's more reliable. You can ramp more quickly. I would like to see a world in the future, not in, probably not in five years, but maybe in 20, where the Defense Department is moving as fast as commercial companies, then we would, the dual use would be less important, but that's not the world we're in today. 
So what will need to happen is we'll need the Defense Department to make the changes we talked about here to be able to move more rapidly and create a duality in the system on how we buy the separate fast follower type system to make more commercial companies successful. Then we can create that middle tier that you're looking for. But in the meantime, uh, we're going to be investing in companies that also have a successful commercial market to make sure the companies are successful while we explore the avenues to get them in the Defense Department. I've got one more question, Mike, and it's about talent and something I hit on at the top. Ben's cares a lot about the ability to have cross-pollination between the private sector, public sector, academia, all the key players. What was your experience like going into government? And is there anything we can learn from it to make it more attractive for folks to maybe step out of the private sector and, and go in or any lessons learned there? It's hard. Uh, I'm disappointed to say we don't make it easy if you want to serve. Uh, and that's everything from uh, you know the massive amount of paperwork to not even the first clue about how to recruit people. Mm -hmm. Instead of recruiting, you're basically running a gauntlet to get your fight your way in to, to try and serve. And then uh, when you are in a, uh, a government job, the assumption is you're doing something wrong and we're going to come investigate you if you've uh, crossed any lines. So in, instead of uh, a system that really tries to bring in the most capable people, give them resources they need, and trust them. So we need to rethink what those incentives are. And, it's, and we, we're, we live in a uh, society we've created where the military and the business community and even academia are stovepiped. So we have to rethink how can we make those more, more porous so that talent can be moving across those lines and we benefit the military by what's happening outside and connect more of U.S. society to, to the military because as we know, less than 1% is connected to the military. That's not uh, the kind of foundational strength we need for a capability as important as the U.S. military. So, Mike, as we're, as we're closing up this fascinating discussion, and I think we could talk here for, for, for hours and hours. Yeah. You know, Beyond um, the listener's patience. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, for all those, and we've got a really diverse set of listeners, um, you know, you, I think anybody who has had the tremendous accomplishments you have, have had to, you know, work your way through a bunch of stresses, struggles, strengths, and, and remain resilient. And I don't think that's tied to age or seniority. Everybody goes through, you know, different periods. Any, any tips or things you would bring our listeners? Uh, you know, I often talk about how to stay fresh, right? And, and if we're going to be innovative and adaptive and fast moving and fast followers, you know, individuals have to be fresh, teams have to be fresh. Any, uh, any things you've done over your career or tips you've pick, picked up? that have helped you? Because, you know, as, as, as stressful as things were and, you know, going through all the processes, you're always an upbeat, happy, you know, bringing your A-game, which, which was inspiring and attracting, I think, to the change you were trying to draw. Any, any uh, tips you'd give our listeners here? You're ready to say that. You know, uh, I would say persistence, if you're going to do anything uh, in the world's largest bureaucracy and, and, and work in the government, when, I feel like we need more talent uh, there. Persistence, you can't uh, get discouraged the first time somebody says no. And the other would be curiosity. I mean, one of the things that, it was one of the most uh, fascinating, rewarding jobs I've ever had, and I feel like I've been lucky to have some pretty interesting jobs, uh, because that was a learning experience for me. How does the military work? How is it funded? How does the relationship with Congress work? So 
having a curiosity about that, and I'd say, you know, that, that was what I was bringing to uh, DIU, but this applies everywhere to everyone. If you're bringing curiosity to what you are engaged in, you're going to be a more effective leader. Um, none of us has all the answers, and you learn so much from folks like you, Hondo, that you get a chance to work with. I found it one of the most stimulating uh, experiences to uh, be around not only our enlisted men and women, but senior leaders uh, at DOD and hear about their experiences and, uh, and, and learn from them. Well, with that, Mike, thanks so much for taking the time to share with our listeners your story. You've set such a great example for so many of us, and thanks for your leadership around these issues. No, you're very kind. Thanks. It's great to be here with you. You've been listening to Building the Base, a podcast from the Business Executives for National Security. Join hundreds of senior leaders and executives dedicated to the mission of keeping our nation safe. Check out our projects we're currently working with, important upcoming events, and the many ways you can get involved at www.bens.org.